0: I think primarily beauty is a picture of grace in that we don't necessarily ask for it and don't necessarily
1: deserve it, but it comes to us nonetheless. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Benjamin Myers is a literature professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's also former Poet Laureate of Oklahoma and the author of three books of poetry, His most recent book, A Poetics of Orthodoxy, is not a book of poetry, but a book about poetry. In it, he makes the case that Christian orthodoxy provides a reality-based way of knowing what kinds of poetry most resonate with human experience. All right, Benjamin Myers, thank you so much for being
0: on The Habit Podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm a listener and fan.
1: Oh, good. Well, okay. I have to. I have to start here, and that is you. Uh, I guess not are, but were the poet laureate of Oklahoma. Yes. When I was little, the title poet laureate just sounded like the most glamorous job title I'd ever heard in my whole life. Um, what are the uh, What are the rights and privileges and responsibilities of a poet of a state poet laureate?
0: Sure. Well, to take a little bit of the glamour off, uh, when, when I got the appointment, I was explaining what a poet laureate is to my then uh, small children. And I, I was talking about the, the laurel wreath that they, mm-hmm. they placed on the head of the sort of chief poet of the of the mm-hmm. city. Yeah, and uh, my daughters pipe up, uh, and one says, uh, "Oh, oh, good, Daddy, it will hide your bald spot." Oh, so <laughs> <sort of laughs> took me down a notch right yeah. from the beginning of yeah. the of the thing. Mm-hmm. But the, the job was basically to promote the art of poetry in the state of Oklahoma. So uh, I gave a lot of workshops, going around and encouraging uh, kids in school, retired people uh uh, community groups in in the writing of poetry and the reading of poetry and then a few talks on on the art
1: in oklahoma on the history of poetry that sort of thing yeah um well between um you know when i when i um think of oklahoma poetry i think about cowboy poetry and i think about (laughs) uh you know a few excellent country songwriters you know from Mm -hmm. oklahoma um, but I've also read your uh, your book of poetry, Black Sunday, uh, which I just really uh, really loved. And, and I mean, talk about earthy poetry. You know, I mean, and, and we'll get into this topic here in a minute. But the earthiness of that of of those poems certainly, you know, which literally are about dirt and what happens when the dirt blows away and blows up. And you know, it was, it was, uh, yeah. we were discussing a minute ago before we started recording. I, almost every poem in in that collection uh involves the word dust or earth or dirt all right
0: Uh, yeah well thank you for that yeah um you know when i became laureate i felt almost a sort of duty to write about the dust bowl Uh, yeah it's sort of uh sort of what the trojan war was to the the greeks of homer's time you know the dust bowl is to oklahomans yeah so it felt like a, a subject i had to address in a way yeah
1: well um i uh I just, I really uh, love that collection of poems, Black Sunday. Uh, so you're you in the voice of four or five characters. It's just a sonnet cycle about the dust bowl. Is that a, yeah. is that a fair assessment of uh, that is, summary? That is a fair assessment.
0: Uh, you know, for that for that book, I wanted to do something in the voice of someone else. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll return to the anecdotal sort of personal poetry that that mm-hmm. is is common but uh I was a little sick of myself at that point <laughs> I wanted to, wanted to write about somebody else so I yeah. tried to get into the head of some characters
1: yeah well um okay so uh, as i said very earthy poetry that doesn't float off into abstraction really ever i'm happy to report um so let's that, that'll be our entree into the book i really want to talk about and that is a poetics of orthodoxy um which in these books one came out in 2019 and one came out in 2020 is that right uh yes yes um and so a poetics of orthodoxy um can you just get like when people ask you what this book is about what do you what do you tell them
0: yeah, well, um, you know, this book really came out of my teaching creative writing in the uh, Christian liberal arts context. Uh, mm-hmm. When I first started teaching creative writing, I, I was telling my students all the things I've learned from a lifetime of reading and, and taking classes, that they need solid images, that they need evocative metaphors. That, mm-hmm. And I was giving them all these sorts of things on a to-do list in, in a good poem but my students were so smart that, that they asked me, you know, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and So mm-hmm. I'd say, make sure you have solid images in your poem. And, and uh, they would say, why? And so I had to come up with an answer. Yeah. Uh, and, and I knew really there there were two ways one might, in, in, in the world we live in, ground an answer like that. Either either scientifically or theologically. Uh, and uh, lacking science credentials even more than theological credentials <laughs> and uh, and and believing that ultimate things are are first things um yeah. i i grounded it in theology and so it's my my attempt to answer theologically the question what
1: makes a good poem good so uh and i'm gonna i'm gonna quote from you here you say i argue for orthodoxy not as an arbitrary standard for poetic achievement but as a reality-based way of knowing what kinds of poetry, what poetic characteristics most resonate with true human experience. Yeah. Um, reality-based. Uh, that that phrase jumped out at me. Reality-based <laughs> way of knowing what resonates. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My that. my idea was that, or uh, my thought was that orthodoxy basic christian truth tells us we might say the way it is Mm -hmm. this is the world we live in this is what a human being is this is what a human being is in relation to god Mm -hmm. Uh, this is what to expect from human life Uh, all those aspects of of the, the basic biblical doctrine and so what resonates with us artistically uh, should resonate with that biblical doctrine that uh, who who we are is revealed uh, to a great extent to us through through scripture, mm-hmm. and that the the art that speaks to us um, will speak to us in those terms.
1: Yeah. So your remarks here remind me of of uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers, um, in the Mind of the Maker. You know, she she's reflecting on Aristotle and Aristotle's Poetics, and and she says. In essence, it's not that he's making up these arbitrary rules that, that people need to follow. It's that he has observed what works and what doesn't work.
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, it's it's experience-based, yeah. which, which is really the way I knew most of this first. I, I, I knew right. I loved a poem with uh, a solid image. I knew I loved a good evocative metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the question was just sort of to work backwards from there to figure out
1: why. Why does it yeah. appeal so much? Right. And um, as people, um, um, uh, you know, back to Aristotle, you know, as people have tried non-Aristotelian ways of structuring stories, we just don't like those stories very much. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's,
0: it's interesting for, for about
1: 15 minutes right,
0: yeah, to, right, to violate right. those norms. And, and then once someone else has done it, it gets, it gets old fast.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so um, that that idea of reality-based criteria—I mean, I I I think that's really helpful to to acknowledge. And and this seems to be a theme, I you know, throughout your book is the idea that there's something that exists outside our our heads that we you know it's, it's it's writing is not a question of going you know. It doesn't. It's not something that just happens between our ears. It's something that that we have a relationship to something outside of us, and that's where writing comes from. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, I I think good writing, in some sense, has to take the idea of of the soul seriously, of a mm-hmm. a, a being uh, who who we are that that doesn't originate with us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay. So we need to so while we're at it. We need to talk about Gnosticism, mm. right? Because you uh, you treat Gnosticism as the great bugaboo of uh, <laughs> of uh, poetry. Um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. I guess it, since uh, since you're the one who who you know writes about Gnosticism, maybe give us a quick summary of what you mean by Gnosticism, and then why is it so inimical to um, yeah. to good writing? Yeah, I mean,
0: Gnosticism is 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 a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. Not the sort of thing that that is easy to pin down. It's a bit like postmodernism, <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways. It's yeah, like right. postmodernism. But uh, so so the Gnostics who who believed in the sort of secret knowledge that leads to salvation, uh, and as distinct from the sort of uh, widely available truth of the gospel, right? right. Uh, so so it begins as in a sort of elitist. Thing, but what I'm primarily interested in uh, about the Gnostics is their sort of hyper Platonism, their rejection of all matter as uh, either irrelevant or even even um, evil. Right. So oh. often the Gnostics would would preach that re- well, really there there are two gods. Right. There there's an Old Testament God who created stuff, mm-hmm. and then you know the New Testament God who offers us the way out of stuff. Um, <laughs> Which is not is not biblical truth, right? We right. know that our God is is the Creator God, uh, and that we are not souls trapped in bodies, hoping someday to be free of the material realm. We're mm-hmm. waiting on the redemption of matter. Yeah, and so that's that Gnostic attitude that really only the quote unquote spiritual matters and the physical is irrelevant at best and, and bad at worst that that's bad for poetry because no poem can really resonate with us. That doesn't meet us in the physical world. You know, um, we want to, we want to write about abstractions, uh, sometimes big things like love or, or hope or, or, um, sadness, but we've only ever had those feelings within our bodies, right? We've been loved somewhere. We've been sad somewhere. Um, you know, in, in your newsletter recently on, on writing Valentine's uh, poetry <laughs> and uh, love poems, you, you gave a great exercise, because you, you mentioned that you, people want to write about their emotions for Valentine's Day, but they yeah. should start with a memory rather than the emotion and i I thought that was great advice uh because you know you can't really get at a feeling the direct way right we we experience our feelings as soul body combinations
1: yeah yeah that gets to something you you said in in a poetics of orthodoxy that um that embodiment you know the, the fact that we that we experience everything we experience in our bodies, that explains why imagery is more emotional than emotional talk.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, a lot of that rooted in uh, the Imagist poets sort of emphasizing that. And of course, long, long before them, the the Eastern tradition of the Tang dynasty poets in China and, and haiku in Japan sort of intuited, that truth as well. The yeah. William yeah. Carlos Williams great line about "no ideas but in things" uh, yeah.
1: speaks to that. Yeah, we don't have. Uh, uh, I mean, I, it's. it's I, I've got this sort of uh, have mixed feelings about this because obviously the fact we we are capable of thinking in abstractions in mm-hmm. a way that. Monkeys and dogs <laughs> and even babies aren't mm-hmm. able to think abstractly, and so you know, I, I, there's no. Um, uh, I, I think part of the image of God in us is the ability to to handle abstractions. Yes, and yet, you know, as a poet, as a fiction writer, in, in some ways, we are giving up the the right to <laughs> to speak directly of abstractions and 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 say um i'm my job right now is to you know bring those abstractions down to earth rather than to to talk about them directly yeah i think that's right
0: uh you know ab- abstractions are important and, and i in our liberal arts uh, education where i teach i teach a lot of philosophy as as well and and happily deal in inst- abstractions when doing so but the, the task of mm-hmm. the, the artist, I think, is, is different. Uh, and, and I think it's important to understand it's not really an abandonment of these abstract concepts, but, mm-hmm. but an attempt to, to embody them, right? So yeah. we don't want to run in the uh, opposite direction of, of the Gnostics and go too far, right? So, so in Oklahoma, right. you know, we might say there's, there's a ditch on either side of the road, there. Uh, and you wanna go down that, that middle of of ideas in things when, right. when writing.
1: Yeah. And and to acknowledge and, and to to uh, deal with the truth that that ideas well as you said as as, as William called, Carlos Williams says no no ideas but in things. Um you in getting at ideas by way of things and, or, you know, Flannery O'Connor talks about staying on the surface, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, it is incumbent on the fiction writer to stay on the surface, which yeah. seems so counterintuitive. <laughs> um, but the surfaces are, are what we have to work with as fiction writers, as poets. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. And I, I think it's uh,
0: through encountering the surface that you can come to, to sense the depths beneath it that yes. it's very hard in, in a poem to have an authentic sense of transcendence uh, without first encountering the physical world. Yes. You know, th- this idea of the the transcendental sign, that the, the things in this world point beyond this world. That idea was so important to Augustine, for instance.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so now we're back to this anti-gnostic Way of talking about the world that mm-hmm. it's not you have ideas over here and things over here, but rather yeah. that they, those those things are, are together. Right?
0: Exactly, which of course brings us right to thinking about the incarnation and and who mm-hmm. who Christ is.
1: Yeah. Well, as you may know, this is a this is a hard hitting. Um, uh podcast and so i i've, I've got a, a one thing i gathered from your uh book is that you believe in reincarnation so could you explain yourself <laughs> yes I, I, i'm gonna I quote you. Good poetry my college is, uh
0: board yeah, yeah you yeah. say good poetry is reincarnation
1: <laughs> i mean that's <laughs> that's right
0: no nah, um uh no, no one's prepared for the Inquisition, is what, I, what I've heard, but I'll, <laughs> right, I'll yeah. do my best. I'll do my best. So obviously, I don't mean reincarnation in the sort of uh, mystical or Eastern or New Age sense, so uh, I'm not claiming I was once uh, an Egyptian princess or, or anything like that, <laughs> okay. but uh, I, I'm sort of riffing on uh, the great uh, intellectual historian and philosopher Charles Taylor there, who talks about... Uh, Christianity in the modern age going through a process of excarnation, sort mm-hmm. of separating out uh, s- spirit from body. So a sort of um, hidden gnosticism in in the church. Uh, and so when I say reincarnation, all I all I really mean, uh, though though it is a kind of cheeky. Way to put it. <laughs> all, all I really mean is returning returning to the body, right? Re, mm-hmm. Returning to the body, um, fighting off that sort of Gnostic tendency to separate out spiritual experience and, and physical experience.
1: Uh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> well, I'm glad you explained yourself. Yes, yes. I thought we were about to have a controversy. Um, speaking of Charles Taylor, uh, uh, where where do you, where do you go for, for Charles Taylor? I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big, that's a, a big thing to, a big chunk to, to bite off. So yeah. uh, <laughs> what, what what's an entry point for, for Charles Taylor and his thinking? Yeah.
0: If somebody is, is interested in Taylor's work, uh, but, but hesitates to dive into very understandably hesitates <laughs> to dive into the 3000 page tome, uh, yeah. James K.A. Smith has a, a great little book, uh, mm-hmm. how, how to Not Be Secular, I, I believe is the title. That is yeah. a, a good introduction. How Not to Be Secular. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, How Not to Be Secular. That's a really good introduction to to Taylor's thought. Also, my my colleague at OBU, Alan Noble, has a wonderful book called uh, Distracted Witness that uh-huh. sort of makes a, a practical spiritual application
1: uh, out of Taylor's work okay good to know um all right um let's talk about beauty like like i said i I want to talk about your whole book but we'll we'll just cover what we can cover um and so you talk about the idea that beauty is a picture of grace um i want to hear more about that
0: yeah um i think primarily beauty is a picture of grace in that we don't necessarily ask for it and don't, don't necessarily deserve it, yeah. but, but it comes to us, uh, nonetheless, right. Yeah. Uh, this sort of idea of common grace that, mm-hmm. that God, there are certain gifts God has given all human beings. So we can all, uh, on a nice snowy day like this, walk to the window and, and look out at the, uh, fallen snow and, uh, Sense something there that is that is a gift uh, that yeah. is pure pure grace. Yeah, uh, I think unfortunately beauty is also like grace in that we can grow resistant to it. We can grow um, hesitant or indifferent to yeah. to receive the gift.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, now I can't remember where I read this, but but of the big three, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, truth and goodness are things we strive after. You know, yeah. that, that they're they're out there that we that we go after. And then but beauty is something that that comes to us. Um it does. And that, and that that may not be I, I may be overstating the case, right? Because there are certain ways that that truth and goodness come to us too. But but nobody is you know, the way we think about beauty, and, and I think one way that it that it feels so much like grace is um it's, it, it's outside of us, and it comes. It comes to us, um, and we respond to it. Um, and there's there's nothing to do but respond to it. I don't know. Yeah. Again, I, I may be overstating the case, and in, in, in a, a, a more properly philosophical approach to this, you know, I, I may be wrong. But but that seems interesting to me. That that when when you think about truth, you're telling. You know, the, the idea is. I go after truth, and when it comes to goodness, I need to be good. Mm. Um, but when it comes to beauty, um, that's not a matter of something that I have to then go. You know, I have to become more beautiful. It's it's, it's really about that coming to me.
0: I think that I think that's a, a great insight. Yeah, I mean, there there have been those times when truth has knocked me on the head, or, or goodness has has come along and 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 ambushed me in some sense. But but far more often, I have found those are things that need to be sought out whereas beauty is there and I think yeah. that's why so many in the church historically and I think uh, there's a return to this uh, in some parts of the church today have seen that beauty can be an entryway to truth and goodness yeah. that there's a kind of apologetics of beauty um, mm-hmm. you know that that we shouldn't be afraid to let beauty, woo us for truth and goodness
1: yeah um and i think especially interesting and and you touched on this in your book is this idea that yes yes we there's a subjective i mean more or less by definition there's a subjective aspect to beauty i i respond to that i have feelings about beauty Um, and yet it is a response to something that's outside me. So it's, you know, to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder is, is, um, in one sense, okay, sure. Because (laughs) it is my eyeballs that, that, (laughs) that receive the beauty and I I do respond to it, but it's outside me. Um, and there's, it's this, this dance between the objective and the subjective that feels like a very relevant, um, uh truth or, or analogy or, or something to to much bigger things than than well to, it's like it's like it's a secret to the universe or something this connection between the <laughs> subjective and the objective <laughs> in beauty yeah,
0: yeah i think i think that's wonderful uh, um you know i i think of beauty again in that christian platonic uh sense of the transcendental so it's not just that God makes beautiful things, is that ultimately God is beauty. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so all beauty we encounter in the earth um, is a reflection of Him. And so, Mm -hmm. in in that sense, it can't be any more subjective than truth. Um, So, often when we talk about the subjective nature of beauty, we're really just sort of talking about preferences within beauty so for instance you know we know uh some people like astronomy and some people like uh let's say geology Mm -hmm. doesn't make astronomy truer for one person and geology truer for another person there's just a preference there so so maybe you really enjoy encountering beauty in bach and i really enjoy encountering beauty in in dante Mm -hmm. um that doesn't mean that there's not real beauty in both of those artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means we're responding to the beauty that is there in a slightly different way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think you're right. That sort of dance of the the subjective reception to the the objective reality is is a good way to think about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in um, um, in all. I mean, you know, for for me, it's I'm always thinking about writing, and um, but for all art forms, I, I think it's so important that that we sort of acknowledge. I mean, well, you, you wrote about the dust bowl, and mm-hmm. and and you there were some facts out there that you didn't invent about the dust bowl, and yet every one of those poems is about a the subjective experience of those facts, right. Right? and so mm-hmm. there isn't any. That those poems couldn't have happened without the objective facts of the dust bowl, and they also couldn't have happened without the subjective experience of those <laughs> objective facts. Um, and so, um, so we can we can talk about you know being subjective without being in fear of floating off into you know moral relativism <laughs> or whatever. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. It's a it's it's a personal encounter, but it's an a personal encounter with reality. Uh,
1: and, and that's really yeah, where uh, art yes, happens. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Love it. A personal encounter with reality. Um, mm-hmm. I I uh, I'm gonna write that down right now. <laughs> Give me a second. I'm writing this. down. Yes. Uh, so, as as a college teacher, I'm not used to people actually taking notes. So you're you're <laughs> you're throwing me <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I had to wake up this eight a.m. class. <laughs> um, I'm not sure where, so, Okay, so the other thing I want to talk about beauty. It, you talk about this this idea that men, in particular, are reluctant to say too much about beauty, mm. um, because um, well, I, I mean, I don't know if this is relevant to say it's, it's men or not, but but beauty makes us aware of something small in us, and um, and there's there's something about vulnerability related to our encounter with beauty. So, can you tell me more about that?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that, that sense of smallness, in one sense, is is an entirely correct reaction because w- when we encounter mm-hmm. beauty, again, it's it's pointing us to its source in the infinite God. So we ought to Mm -hmm. feel our finiteness in the uh, Mm -hmm. presence of Mm -hmm. beauty. Uh, The problem comes in when, when we just can't accept that. Uh, particularly in our post-romantic and post-modern sort of mindset, we don't like to think of ourselves as limited. And, of course, we yeah. probably never have. I mean, you can find plenty of examples in the ancient world of human beings not accepting their, their finitude. But we are particularly bad at this sort of uh, accepting our, our limitations. And beauty shows us a, a glimpse of the infinite, which… which yeah points toward our own finitude. And we, we can either respond to that with um, gratitude yeah. or with kind of uh fear and rebellion. And, and I, I'm afraid sometimes that the general sort of psychological culture we live in is more encouraging of fear and rebellion than it is of, of gratitude when we encounter hmm. the infinite.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's the, what's the term uh, the the sublime the idea that, mm-hmm. that as we you know we, we come face to face with things that are they're both beautiful and a little terrifying. That's right. You know, a big yeah. waterfall or a big mountain or something, um, and the the I will say the the mountains you know sort of the in the in the east don't strike me as especially terrifying. But with, I've been you know when I have been out west and sort of uh, find myself at the bottom of a of a mountain I, I i see what the idea of the, the sublime it really is a little terrifying to feel so small right. yeah. in front of you know an enormous mountain or a waterfall or, or whatever um so I, I love that that insight um okay we're we're getting close to the end of our time but but we got to talk about diction mm-hmm. uh, i mean your chapter on diction you're really speaking my love language there <laughs> um and and you you say you talk about this idea of language using the importance of using language that, that we own, or maybe language that we belong to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and I think that might be a good place for us to sort of begin to bring this conversation in for a landing. Um, uh, so, with you, it, it you're interested in Anglo Saxon as, as opposed to, to Latinate. Diction. Mm-hmm. Maybe we won't get into that just for, for time's <laughs> sake. Although that's one of my interests. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me about this idea of of using language that that we own or language yeah. that that we belong to.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, the the whole goal again is to sort of have that encounter with with reality. And I, so I think those words that are part of our. A deeper emotional life and, and of our first sort of fundamental reality encounter with reality. Those words yeah. we pick up when we're when we're small, when we're children, yeah. often have that kind of impact. Whereas the the fancier, the more the more Latinate words mm-hmm. uh, don't. And you know, it's not that I have anything. I, I actually teaching a class right now on, on uh, Roman literature, where, uh-huh. where my son is learning Latin downstairs as we speak. So it's <laughs> nothing against Latin. Yeah. But uh, as, as an artist, um, we want a, a kind of primary relationship with words that brings us closer to a relationship with, with the world. Yeah. Right? The goal being to kind of bridge that maybe unbridgeable gap between word and thing. And so I think one of the examples I use in, in the uh, book is wood uh, and woods versus forest or, or the Latin adjective sylvan. Um, yeah. You know, when you go to the woods, you see wood. Uh, and, yeah. and so that word is, is closer to the physical world and has a kind of built-in image almost. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, one way I think about it is the difference between words that you learned for a vocabulary test and words <laughs> that you learned just by being a human being. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, that's right. And so
1: right. The, all those Latinate words, you know, Roman people learned those not on a vocabulary test, but they they learned it because it was their words. And exactly, um, I yeah, you know, I I learned the word milk, the Anglo-Saxon word milk, because I was a baby drinking milk mm-hmm. and I learned all those words that related to milk mm-hmm. that start with LA that have L-A-C-T in them for vocabulary tests,
0: you know? Right. That's right. Yeah. And so for, for us, because of that, that infant experience, m- milk is a thing, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. uh,
1: yeah, all, all the other words are, are a concept. Lactose, <laughs> lactose, right? is, yeah. lactose is a thing, but it's more, a con- for, for my purposes more of a concept than a exactly. thing. Now we have to be careful because I mean, you know, uh, flower i don't know any good anglo-saxon word for flower that's flower is a is a latinate word that's right
0: yeah uh and 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 a lot of those latinate words you know do come to us directly and so so the the anglo-saxon latin division which i pick up from george orwell
1: mm-hmm. it
0: yeah. is more a kind of schematic than it is right. a uh yeah. A rule i'm not as i said in the book i'm not trying to establish some equivalency of the king james only for for, yeah. for anglo-saxon diction you know
1: yeah right <laughs> speaking of king james if you start counting how many latinate words are in king james it's amazing how few really there are yeah um i mean think about the the verses that you are most familiar i mean in the beginning was the word and the word was god you know or uh you know it, when you get into Paul, you start getting some Latinate words. Mm-hmm. But but when you're not in Paul, it's it's amazing how many you know. It, I have you know sort of done some counting as to mm-hmm. uh, you know the Latinate versus Anglo-Saxon in the King James and 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 of course of the of the hundred most used words in the English language, I don't think any of them are Latinate. That's uh, not surprising. Even though if you count in the dictionary, something like you know sixty percent, seventy percent somewhere along in there, of the words derived from Latin, but the ones we use the most often are not. Now I'm mm-hmm. cheating a little bit because a lot of those are pronouns and, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Anyway, we're, we're off in the, in the weeds. And I said I wasn't going to get into this, and I did because it's, <laughs> it's always interesting. Um, but, but I love that reminder that as we, as we write about the words through which we first encountered the world, we are We are inviting a reader into the real world and the That's world right. they've experienced and the world that they've experienced and into reality
0: so, yeah and of- and sometimes that can be not just the the anglo saxon basic words but but the the words that are really your your heritage and your uh yeah your beginnings I remember when yeah. when uh, one of my previous books came out. I had I have a friend in New York, a poet, who wrote to me and said, "I really love the book, but I I, I need a glossary because I don't know what a dooley is or or what one does when one brush hogs." Right. And so these uh-huh. are very, I guess, sort of Oklahoman and Southern kind of terms. Yeah. But um, you know, to me, the, those words really resonated, and and I think once once I explained to her what they were, I think uh, I think she got it. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, let's let's uh, let's wrap up with the question. I always wrap up with, and that is, who are the writers who make you yeah. want to write?
0: Ah, uh, hard to answer. So many. Uh, I probably mm. would start with with Robert Frost. Mm. Uh, yeah. Frost is the poet I just probably come back to most uh, in, in in a fellow in the poet laureate yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> y'all are kind of a club
0: that's right well I, they haven't taught me the handshake yet but i'm looking forward to it uh so frost and and another uh poet of new england jane kenyon is is a poet who yeah. means a lot to me just yeah. the, the the meditative uh quiet uh wise nature of, yeah, of I love her poetry her. yeah um And so uh, those two, B.H. Fairchild, a poet from right here in Oklahoma. Okay. um, I I read continually. Uh Uh, You know, to me, a major inspiration is the the new formalists who sort of poets who emerged Mm in the the 80s and 90s. So Mark Jarman, Andrew Hudgens, A.E. Stallings. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. I go back to their uh, work you, again I, and again. You,
1: you must be familiar with the their, that collection, Fallen Angels, that Mark Jarman um edited. Yes. Do you know that? that yeah, but I
0: I've I've used that in uh my poetry classes a few times. Yeah. yeah. Uh Rebel Angels. I have
1: too. That's when I teach poetry, I always make people read that book. <laughs> That's good.
0: Yeah. Um, I love
1: it. It's so great.
0: Jarman's Unholy Sonnets is another uh very yeah. influential book on me that yeah sort of sparked uh, a renewed interest in the
1: sonnet form uh-huh yeah well great well ben Myers, thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you and i hope we can talk again soon thank you i enjoyed it
0: this podcast is brought to you by the rabbit room where art nourishes community and community nourishes art and all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members to learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at
1: taylorlinhart.com. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.